It's 4 p.m. Stand up. It's count time. It's time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. I'm Brother L.D. Azobra, and I'd like to welcome you to another edition of Count Time Podcast. Now today we have this young lady here with this dear friend of mine who I have not seen or spoken with in quite some time. You know, I, I, don't, want, I don't mean to say, say it this way. Let me think of how I say that. She's our first lady of European descent on Count on Time <laughs> Podcast. Can I say that like that? That's fine. Okay, I have Miss Kathy Andre Eames. Welcome to Count Time. Good to be here, LD. Now, how did this come about? <clears throat> now, Miss Kathy and I have been knowing each other for many, many years. I would say at least 30 years. 30, 30, 40. 30? Probably more like 40. It's been a long time. It's been, it's been a long, long time. time. Now, now, you tell everyone how did we how did we got to know each other. I am the widow of George Eames, G. Washington Eames, who was a black paraplegic in a wheelchair for many years. He was the president of the NAACP for many years. We worked together on so many programs, baseball, basketball. Community, all type of community. All kinds of community and programs. I supported, I sponsored quite a few of them. Desegregating education in East Baton Rouge Parish. I even wrote a book about it. The name of it is Warrior for Justice. Oh, the, oh, that, that, the that, Georgine story. Look, that book, I, 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 I hate to jump to this right quick, but I was a part of the process when she was writing the book. I happened to be coming by and visiting her, and when she first started telling me that her nephew had contacted her, contacted her by doing a story on her and her deceased husband, George Eames. And uh, she said, well, Cleve, I believe, what's his name? Cleve Bailey. Cleve Bailey, I've called Cleve. My nephew Cleve said he want to help, want to do a story on George and I. That probably right before George had passed, too, he talked about. Oh, that. yeah. Right before he passed. Even after he passed, he was talking about doing the story. She said, well, Cleve asked me to jot down some notes to help <laughs> with, you know, help him with, you know, selling the, the, the story and uh, have some ideas on how this thing let me explain what he said. He said, Kathy, he said, I'm his great aunt, okay, he said, Aunt Kathy, he said, this is what I we need to know. This is what I've been wondering all my life, and a lot of other people have been wondering this too, especially Joe Delpit, okay. How did this little white girl, born in West Baton Rouge Parish, or Point Capit Parish, actually, I was born, how did you become who you are? You grew up around all white people, prejudiced people. How did you become somebody who was going to fight for civil rights? So I said, Cleve, I said, let me see if I can write down a few things. I'll see if I can figure out how to say this. But I ended up writing a whole book, over 300 pages. And, and I did it in 30 days. And look, and I'm, It poured out of me. I'm here to witness. <laughs> she wrote that book in 30 days. <laughs> when I came in the first day, she told me just the story she just told you just now about what her nephew asked her to do. I came back the next week to check to see how things was going because George had, George had been gone for about a year or two, a couple of years. Yeah, he died. He was just he had just died. Yeah. Oh, not Less, long after? Not, okay. not, no, not, not even a year. Not even a year. So I came back the next week. She said, oh, you won't believe what I have. What do you mean? 
I don't. I got almost a hundred pages. Or you had a hundred pages or something. I probably in, did. In, I mean, in one it, week, I had over three hundred pages. No, so in one <laughs> week, she had almost she had about a hundred, almost a hundred pages. And then she asked me to read it. I said, Well, you know, anyway, I can read that. Uh, I don't read that fast. So she said, <laughs> I said, I'll tell you what. So the next week, I came back two weeks later. She was closing in the two hundred pages. And then she called me, asked me where. Uh, look, I'm almost through. I want to know if you want to write a. So I wrote a few words. I just put something together. I think I was. I came here and wrote it. You may have. Could yeah. you ask me to write something? Because I had Rashid write a chapter. Rashid, we had Rashid yeah, we, and I. We contributed a lot. Yeah. So, so a lot. I wrote something, not knowing she didn't give me a chance to look at, relook at it, edit it, or nothing. <laughs> she just took that. Next thing I know, she got a book in 30 days. <laughs> she finished writing in 30 days a 300 page book and the name of that book is a warrior, warrior for, for justice. justice the george Eames story it was the most powerful thing but, t but give me the background about your history you also was a what kind of teacher i was an english teacher, english teacher where? so that at glen oaks high school for i don't know i guess about 18 years uh before that i worked at sears in management um you did a little work in the LSU because you met George at LSU. I met L I met George when I was teaching at LSU, which was three years. Now, this was years ago. I mean, this was like in uh, the seventies. The seventies. Yeah. Mid early seventies, mid seventies. George and I met about nineteen seventy. Nineteen seventy. Yeah, we would have celebrated our fiftieth wedding anniversary uh, this year. No. Yeah. Man. Right. And he has now been dead 10 years. Exactly 10 years? Yeah, well, he died in <clears throat> December, December 8, um, 2012. And also, people want to know that how you, Joy was, if you, anybody listen to Joy, they would think he hated white people or the people of European descent. You know, let me tell you what George said about that. <laughs> George, what you doing with that white woman? Okay, people asked him that. He said, man, he said, I practice what I preach. I believe in desegregation, and my house is desegregated. <laughs> so there you go. That's, a, that's the answer from George that, himself. That's George himself. Huh? But it's always was interesting to, when uh, George come by the, the restaurant on a regular, when I had a restaurant named Buffalo Wings Express, he would come by on a regular basis. I had never, I had not met you. Right. And you probably time. were wondering what he was doing with that. I, I asked him one. I asked him one day. <laughs> like, you, you say you're fighting for the rights of, of us, of our people, and you married a white woman. That's kind of what do you call it? Austin Moron type of situation, I guess. Where you know how right. are you gonna do this? And you know he always had a good answer for you. Oh you know, yeah, always. he did. But George and I really became close one day when Judge Daryl White was sitting in the restaurant at the restaurant. And George and, and I were sitting there talking. George showed up. Mm -hmm. So when George show, showed up, the judge and George started a discussion. The judge was talking about the Bible. We was talking about the Bible because my restaurant, that's what our focus was, the yeah. Bible. <clears throat> and we was having a discussion about the Bible. And George told the judge as we were sitting there, well, all that sounds good, but you t you telling me if, if I was to get in trouble and I had to come before your court, you tell me I can quote some scriptures and you can let me go. <laughs> I said, well, no, it don't quite go that way. Joe said, that's what I mean. 
you can't go to no courts and quote no scripture. You got to know what the, the you uh, have to know the law, the law, what the law says. Exactly. And so, after that day, but the way George Haller Judge uh, White impressed me more than anything. How he, he was very articulate. He made his point. It, it was going back and forth, back and forth, and it was no winner or loser. But I, grant, I gained a lot more respect. And admiration for George and his insight for this, and all. like it was pretty interesting. The next day, I showed up at your house <laughs> because I wanted to come sit down and talk and to George and learn yeah. more about you, George. You came, you came around quite a bit, I came, and I started coming around a whole lot because Tracy Porter had always uh, spoke very highly of George. I mean, George was pretty close, and because of Tracy too. So when I came here, that's the time y'all had all those uh, garbage bags of articles. I mean, the garbage bags everywhere. George saved everything. He, <laughs> this was his legacy, okay? That's what he, he thought of it. And I thought, it's all going to be crumbling into dust. Your legacy is something much better than a bunch of crumbling newspaper <laughs> I mean, articles. He had garbage bags full, full of articles. Because he saved everything. Because it was all legal. The NAACP is a legal <laughs> organization. Okay. And it approached civil rights through legalities. If you win your rights, you have to win them in the courts. This is what he believed. It's, and this is what he practiced. And he told me that when he was, after he had gotten shot, he was in the, what type of hospital was the veteran, it was? A, the, it was a veteran, veteran hospital, hospital in New Orleans. So he started studying the law books. He started law And understand something. George's highest level of education was like maybe freshman, sophomore level of high school. He never even graduated high school. He had street sense, and he had a lot of cunning, and he had instincts. He wasn't afraid. And then, and he wasn't afraid. There was not a drop of fear in that man. Was no, there was no. Fear. You can kill him if you want, but he's gonna say what he's got to say. <laughs> Matter of fact, and that's the way he was. Not not long after I started coming to visit you, I can't remember the time frame. I remember not not long that somebody. To set your house on fire in those bags of uh, articles. Well, all that, that was lost. Got yeah. burned up. All that burned up. Yeah, a lot of things we lost over the years. So w w when did when did that happen? with someone attempted to burn the house? I think the house fire was in 1989, and we were married at that time. We had an adopted son. I don't remember how old he was at that time. So he was probably about. He was still a little kid, about seven years old. Something like that. That was difficult. It's difficult when your house burns down when you're able-bodied. But when you're in a wheelchair, it's very difficult to find a place that, where, that can accommodate you. Mm -hmm. So we went through a lot. But George, George was in the starting this desegregation lawsuit. We had to get his suits cleaned, ASAP. They were full of smoke damage. And, and wherever we were staying, he had to get ready and go to court every day. Every day. With a burned up house uh, and me struggling to try to, you know, accommodate. We you, finally lived in his whole house on Van Buren Street. We stayed there for a few weeks until we could get our, you know, house fixed back. And that was a, that was a tough time. You got a husband in a wheelchair who's fighting for justice. For, at that time, desegregation. Right. Going to court every day. Going to court every day. And you, you some the... We believed, we believed that the house fire was set by people who wanted to stymie court. This was where the NAACP met 
his office was in uh, in one of the rooms of our house. He had his briefcase, he had notes, he had materials, and we think that they, what they thought they were doing was burning up evidence, burning up what he was going to use in court. Because the fire started in that room. Where all his stuff was. Where in. all George's <laughs> things were, where his office was. That is the room that where the fire started. So my yep. son, this is funny, my son was seven years old at the time. And when we started working on the house to, to restore it, uh, my husband and I were sitting in the master bedroom one day and we, we'd been working all day and we were resting and my son was playing outside and one of his little friends, this little white boy came along and he said, Wardell! <laughs> that was his son named Wardell. Wardell, that was his first name. Wardell, what happened to your house? And my son said, and we had not told him this, some cluckers set it on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Not clue, cluck, clack, clack. No, clunkers, some cluckers had it on fire. Ever George wants to say all that? I don't say know. That. I'm sure he heard his daddy use that word more than once. But no, we had not told him that the clan set the house on fire. He just surmised that it was the clan. Whatever. He called him. We got a we got a kick out of it. It was funny. But George said he speaks truth. <laughs> he said a clucker set it on fire. A clucker set it on fire. Were y'all in the home when it's caught a fire? No, George was at a basketball game with Wardell, and he was, George, it was so funny, he told me about it later. I was at work, and they called me to say, Kathy, you got to go home, your house is on fire. George was called up to the score table, okay, and this was like, I don't know, halftime or something like that. And George, they called, will Mr. George Eames please come to the table or whatever. George says, they're fixing to give me an award. <laughs> And they said, George, you got to go home. Your house is on fire. Said, that was a low blow. <laughs> I don't think I ever told you that story. He loved awards. He loved awards. He loved to be recognized. And he loved Dale Brown in, in LSU basketball. Oh, that, Brown, that, that was, that was his buddy. Yeah. You got to read the book. There's so many stories in that oh, you book. Got, you got to get the book, The Warrior for Justice, George Eve's story. But you, now we got to get to your story now. Your story is that you grew up on the other side of the river. West Baton Rouge in Brule. Brule. Born in, born in Point Coupe Parish. And your dad was part of who? My daddy was a Cajun. I was, my, my ancestry is Cajun. Okay. Now there's a lot of black people. <laughs> I'm kind of olive skinned, okay? Yeah. It, people see me and they say, you black. <laughs> and I say, no, not really, you know. There was the man that worked on the house was Creole. And he said, you can't tell me you ain't black. You just ain't claiming it. I said, no. I said, I'm a Cajun. Now, my great-grandmother was an Indian. Oh, okay? okay? So that's probably where my coloring and my straight hair come from. It's from my, my Native American background. So you're, but no, my family is Spanish, French. Um, one of my great ancestors came from, from France, was a nobleman in France, and lost everything he had and came to this country for that reason. So, you know, that's, that's my biological background. That's an interesting background. It is. Now, your mom, what, what type of work your mom did? My mother was a house, uh, was a homemaker. My daddy worked at Ethel Corporation in the plants. Uh, my mother graduated from high school. My daddy had an eighth grade education. 
He had the same kind of, this is really interesting. He had the same kind of education <laughs> George oh, <yeah>. had. <laughs> but his ignorance was profound. <laughs> he did, your dad no, he could, he could read and write. I did have an uncle who couldn't read and write and who married a teacher. But you know, I came from humble, humble backgrounds. My grandfather, my daddy's daddy was a farmer and he had uh, black people working for him, living on the, on the, it wasn't a really a plantation, it was just a big farm. Oh, no, and, hold on, hold on. I don't know when you say it really wasn't a plantation. It really wasn't a plantation because they were not wealthy people. <clears throat> they were poor people. My grandmother had eight children and she cooked huge meals every day for all the farm hands, the black people who worked there. I mean, she cooked for a bunch of people, all her children. And, uh, and, and the boys worked on the farm until they got old enough and then eventually they went to the plants. You know, the plants, the manufacturing components, all the stuff going on in Baton Rouge, the chemical you know, industry, they all wanted to make more money. They wanted to, to be able to afford more. They left the farms because they just couldn't make enough money on the farms. So, yeah. Now you came out of Brooklyn. How many brothers and sisters you have? One natural brother, one adopted brother. You went into the nunhood. I, I was a Catholic nun and I am a devout Catholic. Okay, now, so we talked about you being... Yeah, a, a, I was in the convent. You was in the convent. So, now explain to what you mean you was in the convent. You, never, you not a, well, never became a nun? I went to a prep school for four years in Mississippi. <clears throat> that sounds strange, but it was in Mississippi. What part of Mississippi? In Chattawall, Mississippi, not far from Macomb. Okay, so just right over the line, really. It was there that I began to challenge my father and his views on racism. I had my own ideas. You have to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> you got to tell us to read the book now. It tells the story. I mean, there's so much in there. If I, if I told the story, it's in the book. We, 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 we would never story. finish. We could tell a few stories. But you, okay. You went to, the, you went to I went, prep school. When I was, when I was in the uh, seventh and the eighth grade, I decided I wanted to be a nun. And I went to a seventh or eighth grade. You decided you wanted to be a nun. Yeah. So what I did is that the school sisters of Notre Dame taught at Saint, at Saint Anthony's in Baton Rouge, Redemptorist in Baton Rouge, and I met with one of the students of those schools who was going to this prep school. Her name was Paulette, and I talked with her, and she told me about Chattawall, so I wanted to go there, because one, the girls, it was a boarding school, so the girls lived there nine months out of the year. They accepted girls from all over Central and Latin America. So I went to school with girls from Guatemala, Venezuela, Honduras, uh, Costa Rica. Uh, they may have been even one or two Mexicans. And I remember one year we had a girl from Africa. She was a white girl, not a black girl. There were no black students there. But because the sisters hired black people to work at the school, they did cleaning, they did cooking. I mean, there, there were so many jobs. You can imagine running a boarding school with a couple hundred girls. You have a lot of need for, for help, for cooking, cleaning, whatever. The Klan burned crosses on the lawn because they did not want the nuns to hire black people. They, they didn't want this, was, this was in the 60s. Yeah. I graduated from high school in 1964, and you know what was happening in the country in the 60s. Mm -hmm. Now, my father was thrilled that I was at Chattawa 
because that meant that I was not going to have to go to school with black kids. So he was, he was, he was happy. Now that's not why I went. Cause that's why integration started in 64. Right. So he was thrilled that his daughter didn't have to go to school with the niggas. That's the way he said That's it. That's the way he said it. Now, your dad was part of the Klan, right? My father belonged to an organization called Southern Gentlemen, Southern Gentlemen. which was a, uh, a segregationist organization started in Baton Rouge. Now, I don't remember the details on this because it's been a while since I read my own book. <laughs> <laughs> read the book. <laughs> read the book. It's very interesting. Okay. But what's just so interesting, and what I, what I do parallels, here I was the child of a deep segregationist, and I married George Eames. That had to be. <laughs> I mean, so he went after me with a gallon of whiskey and a pistol. Your daddy. When he, when he, my daddy. When not, he, hold on. When he not, found not out. Not George Eames. No, not George. Your own father. He was coming after me, and if he found me with George, I'm sure he would have wiped him out too. But no, I had to go in hiding for a while when he finally heard that I was dating a black man. And my mother told him, because my father had gone to a Catholic casilla, and he was a new man. He even went up to a black man who was at the casilla and hugged him so he, and apologized to this man for all the bad things he had done to black people all his life. So when he came home, I mean, this is a story and a half. You never heard all this either, did you? When he came home, okay. my mother was convinced that daddy was able to deal with this. I had been dating George for several months, and she decided that it would be all right to tell him. She thought. She, and he went off the deep end immediately. Kasua, Kasia flew out the window. She said he stayed drunk. He didn't go to work. He would get in his car with his pistol every day, and he was looking for me. Looking for you. Looking dog. for me. And of course, I was scared. So where were you? Well, I was living in an apartment at that time. And I don't know, I can't remember when exactly George and I moved in together, or I moved in with him. But anyway, I couldn't go there. I didn't want to lead my father to him. I did it to protect him. So for a while, I know I had a student that I was teaching at LSU, really fine young man, and his wife. And they invited me to come stay with them. And they lived way out somewhere, you know, in well, Baton Rouge. So you had to go into hiding. I had to go into hiding. <laughs> so how long did you, from your own father? From my own father. How long? Did I did it for several months. Months? Months. It, well, yeah. And then so eventually, eventually he calmed down. And what he said, this is what he said. My daughter is dead. I never had a daughter. The only, the only daughter. The only daughter. And my brother said the same thing. My sister is dead. I never had a sister. And my brother won't talk to me to this day. To this day? To this day. You, you and your brother have never spoken. Correct. Since they found out you right. dated. Now his, his grandchildren, one, his granddaughter made a point of having lunch with me one day. She called me crying on the phone a couple years ago, and I couldn't understand what this was. This was a young woman crying on the phone, and she said, Aunt Kathy? And I said, what? I said, who is this? 
Oh, you didn't, you didn't know who she was? I didn't know who she was. She was grown. She was in college, going to college. And uh, I'm not going to say her name. She said, I just think it was horrible what they did to you, the way the family treated you. But she was sensitive, you know. So we talked, and uh, I met her for coffee, and I gave her a rosary that had belonged to my mother, her grandmother. And, you know, we had a nice chat. To get back to where we started before we diverged all these ways, I went to Chattawa. I was young. I was 13 years old. That was in 1960. I graduated in 1964. And then I entered the convent. Now, during these high school years, I told you, I learned to challenge my father. And I would read books and I would try to to bone up on all my arguments and all that because when I would go home for the holidays, we would usually get into a conversation. And of course, he always blew me away. He was a lot older. I was just a kid. I was 13, 14, 15 years old. And I never could really convince him of anything. You know, there was no way I was going to convince him. So, and of course, that segregation, desegregation was going on. The schools were being uh, desegregated. There were many incidents. There were incidents of hatred and ridicule and just spitefulness, etc. between blacks and whites. For example, they told me stories about what was happening uh, locally. For example, there was a story about uh, a white man who opened a door for a black lady when they were going into a grocery store. And uh, he didn't say anything to her. He just held the door for her. And she said, well, it's about time y'all learn. <laughs> Boy, that burned him up. You know, it just burned him up. You know, and then they told me about black people going into white restaurants. This was in, this was in, uh, let's see, Plaquemine, Plaquemine, Louisiana, right down the road from Brule, okay? Black people went into a restaurant, and what they did is that they, they licked the top of the salt and pepper shakers, because they knew that that would just burn up. <laughs> They did it intentionally. <laughs> yes, putting all those black germs all over the stuff. Anyway, these were some of the stories I heard when I came home. You know, how can I answer those things? I mean, what can I say? Poor kid, I'm just on 13, 14, 15 years old. Anyway, so yeah, I lived through those times. That your, your dad did not even come to your wedding. Absolutely not. He no, he my mother came, but, but you had to sneak around to do that, you know. Yeah, no, he didn't come. My brother didn't come. Had no family there. It was just a quiet wedding, and we were married in a, in a family's home, in a, a friend's home. So that's you, how that. Y'all was married in the Baton Rouge area. Yeah, oh. it was in Baton Rouge. And George, at that, so y'all got married. How old were George? Was old? I'm trying years? to remember. He's 12 years older than you, 15? George, George is 13 years 13, old, was 13 years okay. older than me, right. yeah. I remember something like that. Yeah, yeah, we were, we were different in age. So how did you come to a place, I don't know if I used the term, fell in love with a, a not only a black man, so, someone in a wheelchair, quadriplegic, you know, couldn't. George was an amazing man. Truly was. He was a charmer. Yeah, he was a keeper as far as I was concerned. He had no money. He was paralyzing in a wheelchair. He had no job. He had no money. I mean, you know, but I fell in love with him. I, I fell in love with the man. He was a man. Yeah. So, so, you know? So to you, 
He was everything you could have been. He was, I mean, I fell in love with who he was. You know, if you can understand that. This is a man who stood on every conviction. And I was, I had been a nun. I was full of moral conviction. I was standing on the high ground myself. I was defying everything myself. How could I not love him? He was doing the same thing. We had that in common. Okay, now if you was a nun, people say, well, how is nothing going to get married? Well, no. I left the convent um, when I graduated uh, from, I went to the University of Dallas, which is a Catholic university. I was in a convent for five years. I was a postulant for a year. In other words, kind of testing the water to see whether I wanted this life. I was in what is called a mother house, which was like a training facility for nuns, okay? Then I was a novice for a year. Then I professed vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience for three years. I was sent on mission uh, to teach in Arkansas for that last year. And it was during that year that I decided that I, I didn't, it's not that I wanted to get married. It's not that I was crazy about men or anything like that. What it was is that I felt that the life was just simply too constricted. And I, and I wanted, I wanted to, to know more about people, all people. So when I left, uh, I, I applied to the University of Dallas and I was given a scholarship and I got my master's degree in English. And when I was getting finishing up with my master's degree, I uh, applied to LSU because it was in my hometown, right? Baton Rouge. And they accepted me. So I was hired for three years as, a, uh, as an English instructor. And that's when I met George. George had a friend who was teaching at the, the college and he was a sociologist. So for fun, <laughs> he would invite George to come to his classes at least every year because he knew George was going to turn them all on an ear, you know. <laughs> he would. Oh, he was, good. He was, he was good. able to challenge a lot of these little prejudiced college-age kids, you know. And he would say, when you go home, I want you to do this. I want you to check that. I want you to talk to your parents about that. And they would get, they would get an enlightening, you know. So one of the times that George was invited to come to this man's <clears throat> class, I had been talking to him on the phone. So what he did is that he said, well, you know, I'm going to be on LSU campus. Why don't you come over? Hold on now. What do you mean y'all been talking on, over the phone? Yeah. Oh, well, that's another whole part of the story. <laughs> you got to read the book. <laughs> I mean, this, this book, my, my life story is so convoluted. It is so convoluted. So now... You was talking to George over the phone, and you had to go, you invited And we had just, just been talking. I had just started teaching at LSU that fall, okay? And I, we, what it was is that I was, I had moved into an apartment with a girl who was having some trouble. She was teaching across the river at a school, and she had some black students. So she was having trouble with a couple of the boys, so she decided to call the NAACP to try to get some advice. And of course, she ended up talking to George. <laughs> so she was friends with him. So when she went home to Oklahoma during the Thanksgiving holiday, so that tells you the school year had just started. The Thanksgiving, she said, oh, by the way, there's this man called George who might call while I'm gone. Just tell him I went home to Oklahoma for the holidays. 
This is another whole story. You want to hear this? Story? Yeah, I want to hear it. You want to hear this story? I want to hear it. Okay, so one night, it was, I think, I don't know, it might have been a Saturday night or Friday night, about 10 30, 11 o'clock, the phone rang. It was George. And he said, uh, May I speak to Marsha? I said, Well, she's not here. She went to uh, Oklahoma for the Thanksgiving holidays. I said, What are you doing calling 10 30, 11 o'clock at night? You know, that's not. That's not polite. I said, how do you know I wasn't in bed? He said, who goes to bed on Saturday night at 10.30? And I just hung up on him. Oh. Okay. The next night, 10.30, 11 o'clock, he calls again. And I said, what are you doing calling? I said, you know Marsha's not here. And I hung up on him again. So he did this. About three, four nights running, till finally I started laughing. I said, how long are you going to keep this up? He said, as long as it takes. <laughs> so, George without a quitter, that's what you're telling us. No. He didn't give up. He's not going to give up. He had heard from Marsha that she had moved in, or an ex-nun had moved in with her. And he had memories of nuns. When he was in the hospital, uh, I think he was in the charity at that time, and they moved him later to the veterans. There, was a couple of, there were a couple of little nuns who used to come and visit, and they taught him his prayers. So, <laughs> this is so funny. One of the things George did in his early conversations with me, he recited his prayers for me. <laughs> he recited the Hail Mary. He recited the Our Father. He recited the Creed, etc. He says, you see, I know my prayers. <laughs> He was, like, he like was trying to impress this ex-nun, okay? So I said, well, good for you, you know. He, resort, he also recited a piece of a poem because he knew I was an English teacher. Oh, he, but he loved poetry, too. He did. He loved poetry. Now, you say that, but y'all met. You actually, he invited you to come to one of the, to, he was coming, he was going to be on campus. He invited you over. Right. We met in the cafeteria. So with, you know, his, I can't remember the man's name. He was a sociologist. But see what he would do, George would go to his classes. I mean, he would attend each class. And you know, at LSU we would teach like maybe three classes a day, like three hours. Like you might have a 7.30 class, a 9.30 class, a 10.30 class or whatever. So what he would do is that he would go and he would, he would be there for each of the man's classes and talk to each of his classes. And then they would go to the cafeteria, like to have lunch or to have coffee or whatever after, uh, before George would leave. And they let me know what time they were going to be in the cafeteria. So I went in and I found them. I, I, they told me what to look for. I knew George was in a wheelchair. He was a black man. And they didn't have a lot of those around yeah. in those days. <laughs> so what, what, that was 1970. We met, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think of what year LSU hired me. Because it would have had to have been that fall. Oh, the same year? Yeah, same year. You had just yeah. gotten there. We met, I think we met in 77. Yeah. So when I, f I first got there in 77, so you met the... No, year. it was before that. We met, it was 1970. 1970. It was 19... This was the end of the 60s. This had to be 1970, yeah, because I started going to basketball games with him, and, you know, we, we did all that. Hmm. Now, now, George was a... Uh, unusual character. He was one of a kind. He was one of a kind. They broke the, they broke the mold when they for, made for him. For real, yeah. for, for real. For real, for real. Didn't back down, didn't... No, didn't, nothing. 
didn't stutter a word yeah. when, he, when he spoke something. Let me tell you what motivated him. He was shot in the back by a white man when he was in his 20s. I can't remember, it might have been 23. And he was in the hospital in New Orleans for three years. He nearly died three times. He had double pneumonia, all of this. It was a long time before he was able to go home. And there was a white nurse, an older lady, who he had gotten very fond of. I mean, he was there for three years, okay. And she said, George, this is what he, she told him when he was leaving the hospital. She said, I know you want to go back to Baton Rouge and get even with that white man who shot you. She knew the whole story. She said, but what you need to do is to go back to Baton Rouge and make sure that what happened to you mm. never happens to another young black man. And he thought about that seriously. And he said, that's what I'm going to do, whatever it takes. What happened is that George was sitting on the front porch of his old house on Van Buren Street one day. And this was after he got out of the hospital. And his sister was a beautician and she did business with Mr. Emmett Douglas. Who was, who, the who, who was the state president of the NAACP at, the at that time and also had a huge beauty supply business. So he came by the house to see Gloria and he saw George sitting on the porch and he had been in the army and he said there, young soldier, <laughs> I want you to come work for me. And George said, doing what? He said, working for the NAACP. He said, I need somebody to answer the phone for the NAACP office. And that's how George got started. That's how you got started. Emmett Douglas said, young soldier, I want you to work for me. And when George found out what he wanted to do, he said, I can do it. I'll do it. And he worked his way from the answerer of the phone. Then they glorified him with the office of office manager. He <laughs> <laughs> big time did huh? Then by the time a Bryant... Uh, D.R.C. Bryant became the president. He said, George, he said, uh, you, need, you need a new title. You're doing so much more than an office manager. He said, we're going to name you program director. After that, he became first vice president. And he served as vice president under, uh, I guess, under D.R.C. mostly. And eventually he ran for president and he won. He knew so much. He had been working on this and talking to people. So, you know, solving cases. D'Arcy didn't have to deal with anything. George handled everything. And they knew that. So, so George worked his way up to being the NAACP. He worked president. his way up. That but is. you know what? That's what he needed to do. He needed to learn the law. And then, of course, this was all happening. You know, he had been through the 60s, the 70s. He'd been the 80s. I mean, he had been shot himself. I mean, George knew what was on the table. Now, 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 now they, the thing was, now I know uh, Jim Ingston did a, a piece long, long time ago that vindicated George from the, the situation that happened when, the, when he was shot in the back uh, quite a few years ago, which he did a great job on it. Now, what the story was that, you know, would happen to George? Who shot him and what happened? What happened, George, um, this, is when, this is when he was still walking, when he got out of the Army, okay, and I don't remember what year it was, 
But when he got out of the army, he decided to go to business school. George had never gotten his degree, his uh, high school diploma. So I, I guess he was working on that and going to Spalding Business College. Okay. So and he was taking night classes because he worked at Sears during the day. Okay, he had a part-time job. He was a go-getter. Of course, he was ambulatory at that time, but he worked during the day, so he was taking evening classes. And he wanted to get a, a degree or some kind of diploma or whatever in business management. And one night he was walking home from school. It was late. It was after dark. It was after his last class. And to get to his house, there was a long block, and I don't really know the geographics of this. George showed me at one time, but I can't really remember. There was a long block that he had to either go all the way around, and he was tired. He'd been working all day, been in school all evening. So there was a path that people had worn, people in the neighborhood had worn, which was a throughway through that long block. There were no fences you had to jump over, nothing like that. George was on that path. When he heard somebody call out, hey, you, and he said the next thing he knew, he was on the ground. He'd been shot in the back. Actually, the bullet entered through the side, not, in, not directly in the back. It entered through, because he was, the house was on the side of him, right. you know? And uh, that, you know, that's how he was disabled. That's the same place where... This man claimed that George was a peeping Tom, and that's where this rumor started, and of course it lasted for years. And people were willing to believe the worst thing about black people, you know how that is. And you can imagine how it was in the 40s, 50s, 60s, because this, this shooting took place, George was born in 33, so this had to have been, he was like 26 probably, so 56, around 56. This was the same time my father joined Southern Gentlemen. <laughs> all this was happening at the same time. The Jim Crow laws, all this was happening at this time. So, and the so, man who shot George never served. He was a property owner. He was white. He had a business. So the police simply accepted what he said. And what was the name of the business? I can't remember. It was the florist business? I think it was some kind yeah, of a florist business. business. Yeah. That was right on but this is an interesting thing. My uncle worked for the Veterans Administration for many years, and he was curious about George. So what he did, he dug into the files, and he found George's file, and he found a letter from then DA, Scal I think his name was Scallon, who wrote a letter to the Veterans Administration who denied George all veterans benefits. He never got a veterans pension, okay? Because according to what the, the, uh, the, the I guess the, the parish claimed, George was engaged in wrongdoing at the time he was shot. This man, this DA, wrote a letter to the Veterans Administration saying that George they had, he had never been satisfied that George was doing anything wrong when he was shot. And for that reason, they had never arrested him or charged him or convicted him. So he was letting the Veterans Administration know that this man should be able to get his pension. The VA buried the letter.
never got. And years later, I challenged George on this. I said, George, I said, you're fighting for everybody's rights but your own. Why don't you challenge the VA? He said, Kathy, it's old. The evidence is gone. He said, oh, we, we tried. We did a little bit. We wrote to congressmen, never got, any, in, never got anywhere with it. So we just let it go. I remember that. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Now, the thing about it, if, if the man who, who charged George for being a peeping Tom, when he walked out the front of the porch and fired the shot, if he would have been running, that would have been one thing. But he was found walking on the sidewalk because once he was shot, he couldn't walk anymore. Right. That was the, the way last, he fell, yeah, it was, that, he, was that was it. He was, was paralyzed. So, so that let you know that where, where they found him at was on the sidewalk. At the, end of the, at the end of the sidewalk, almost in the road, that's what... Uh, that's what you were told? Yeah, yeah, I think George told me that, too. Yeah, and yeah. If they'd, they'd have found he him wasn't close, near the man's they'd, house. They'd, they'd have found him close by the window. Right, or, you know, somewhere exactly, because if the man shot him right there at the house, it would be at the house. Right, so he, they'd have, right. he, was, he was found where he was shot immediately. And you have to remember what the times were like. This was 1956 with the Jim Crow laws. Plus, another thing that was happening... All these veterans were coming out from being, you know, in the army overseas. Thousands of them, black veterans, and people, country. people were paranoid about what these black men would do in the in the in the fifties. They had a reason to be. Yeah, <laughs> right. All they done, they know when you feel, when you right. feel guilty about so what you So understand done. what what the tensions were like between blacks and whites at that time with the Jim Crow laws. Uh, I, it's all in the book. <laughs> but, but what, all of this is in the book. Now, what made you, at a young age, challenge your dad? Because on, I knew on, he was wrong. On a group of people that you didn't know nothing about. Uh, exactly. I didn't know any <laughs> black people. No, no, take it back. There were two black people that I knew pretty well. There was an old black man, Bill and Hester, who lived down the lane, which is now called Andre Lane, they worked on my grandfather's farm when they were young. And, of course, my, my dad and his brothers picked on them. But they liked them. They loved them. Uncle, this is something I noticed, and this is in the book, too. When we visited my grandparents, sometimes Bill, Bill loved the kids. He, he grew up with those boys, working in the fields with them. So when they would come to visit on Sunday, Bill would come visit, too. But we all sat on the porch in rocking chairs in the swing. Bill always sat on the steps. I noticed that. I was a little kid. I was maybe six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. And Bill always gave me a quarter. He was, he, he loved Roy's kids. We were little kids. He wasn't prejudiced towards us. And he always called my daddy Mr. Roy. And he called me Miss Kathy. Everybody was Mr. We called him Uncle Bill and Aunt Hester. I noticed all that. I was a bright kid. You're even brighter woman. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, that's where the seeds were planted, I think, right there on my grandfather's porch. It was always interesting. I'm going to tell you about my league experience. <laughs> when I was a little boy, I think he was like 10, 11 years old. And my, mom, my grandmother, told us that we want you to come. She used to work for this lady named Miss Cat. 
Uh-huh. And so she used to go clean up her house, cook for her. So she said, "We would need, uh, I want y'all boys to come on down there. Miss Cat need her, her, her yard rake. And, you know, it was that time of the year where, the, like right about now. Yeah, right, fall. You know, fall where, after fall where all the leaves are everywhere. Yeah, right. So we said, why don't you come over there? And so we, we went over there today. Several things happened. <clears throat> but one thing happened, Miss Cat had a little son, too. And he called my grandmother by her first name. And, uh -huh. and that shook me. Yeah, that that wasn't appropriate. Yeah, I mean, that's my... <coughs> that's your like, grandmother. That's your child like me. You owe respect. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You call my grandmother by her first name. That that never set right in my okay, mind. Okay, so that's when it's begin. the lights are beginning to go off. I guess that's similar to what happened with yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. You taught something, one thing, yeah, but right. you're seeing something else taking place. Right. And now you got a question where, how, yeah. is, how it applies here, and don't apply over here. Right. So, There's another story that I wanted to tell you, and I think you'll like this one. When I was at Chattawa, I was in boarding school. We would go home for Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter. And one, sometimes my parents came to get me, but other times I rode a bus, a Greyhound bus. Now remember, this is between 60 and 64, okay? Got on the bus. In Mississippi. In Mississippi. Got on the bus one day, and they didn't have any free seats in the front. So I just went all the way to the back. Oh, no. Where all the black people were sitting, right? <laughs> Too comfortable now. So I'm sitting, I'm sitting at a, uh, in, probably in the last seat or the second to last seat, and there's an old black lady sitting next to me. And I noticed every time we got to a bus stop, a bus station or whatever, there would be all these faces looking, looking at that little white face in the back of the bus. And the black people would be pointing to me and they would be telling each other. I said, I wonder what they're so excited about, you know? <laughs> so anyway, when I got home, my parents said, well, how was the bus ride? I said, it was fine. I said, the bus was pretty full and I had to sit in the back. I had to sit by a black lady. And my daddy said, woman. I said, that's what I said. I said, by a black lady. He said, there's no such thing as a black lady. Oh. You said by a black woman. Oh. The bells are going off. See, I thought nothing of it. So that's what... <laughs> I mean, I thought of nothing of sitting in the back of the bus with the black people. But my daddy was instructing me. There's not a woman. There's not no a such thing a as a woman. black lady. There's a woman. Your mama's a lady. That, the person you sat next to was a black woman. So it, that's a process, that's almost like a brainwashing. Exactly. Process. Well, you know what? He was trying to raise me in the good old Southern tradition, you know? But see, this is why I had to oppose him. And, and although he had no more education than the average, one, than George E. Himself. He had no more education than George, but George educated himself. But he still didn't matter, no matter how little or, or much education a he had. A black he woman was more, he was more than could have had a doctorate. Been, been a professor in a school, have been a doctor, a nurse. As far as my daddy was concerned, she's a black woman. She's no, no such thing as a black lady. And he never changed his mind about that, as far as I know, you know. So, so your, brother till was, his death. your brother was trained in all those ways. All those ways. And he had this, it stuck with him. Understand, my brother has had black friends. But it don't matter. But he, hey, he but it's me. different to have a black friend than to have a black in the family. <laughs> That's different. 
And this is funny. I have an aunt, my, my godmother, my, my, my daddy's younger sister, Doris. I loved her dearly. She was, she stood up to her family on race. They used to call her the nigger lover. She was the nigger lover in the family. And I can remember my uncles, my daddy, and different people telling her, I hope your son marries a nigger one day. And of course, my daddy's daughter married. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't happen to Doris. <laughs> but I mean, they hated what she was telling them. She was a moral woman. She she believed what the way I believe, you know? So, she was a good person. Y'all had y'all always had a great relationship. They always argued, they always argued with their you, sister you, but Doris. You, but you and her, you and always yeah, oh, we got along. We understood one another. So if you didn't believe in the ways of the way your dad was taught, right. anybody that it could look like him. It didn't matter. If you looked like him, but you didn't believe the way he believed, you was like an enemy to him. Yeah, my daddy really looked down on other people, period. They looked down on the Dagos. <laughs> they looked down on everybody except themselves. I don't know whether they did it because they were uneducated. Uh, well, that's part of it, of course. Yeah. But, you know, they just, uh, they didn't believe that other people were as good as they were. See, this is something that happened to my Aunt Doris, and it may be part of the reason why she was the way she was. When she was young, she fell in love with a young Italian man, and her parents opposed it. Okay, now she was part Violent. She was, part she was Cajun. Cajun. <laughs> so what's the difference? <laughs> Italians are Dagos. Okay? I don't know whether it has to do with what they knew about the Mafia or Sicily. But Dagos, that's what they called Italians. Yeah. I'm simply using the word that my father used, that my family used. But what my, my aunt did, this was the man she loved. She didn't marry him. Because? Because of her parents' objections. She married a man that she grew to love, but she was not in love with. He was a good man. My Uncle Sidney, he was my godparent. But this may be the reason why she stood up later, when she was older. She was a young girl then when she fell in love with this Italian boy. But you stood up at a young age. I stood up from day one. <laughs> from the I was like George, I guess. But it, besides your auntie, anybody else in your family had that, that type of... Nobody. Nobody wanted to change. Nobody. Because, you know, I have to tell you this. A couple of George's friends came over to visit with with us, you know, when I was with him, and uh, you remember Weldon Gaines? No, I don't remember Weldon. I don't know Weldon Gaines. I don't remember whether he's dead or alive. He would be very, very old if he is alive. He would ask me all the time when he became his, "You sure you don't have some sisters like you? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a cousin?" <laughs> we always ask that question because yeah, right. You, you and I would tell him, Weldon. There's nobody like me. Believe me, I'm the one and only. <laughs> you served George well. You served him to the end. You took great, excellent care of that man. When he, when he stepped out the house, as anybody knows George stepped out the house, he was going to be looking good, representing. Let me tell you something. That was George. I mean, but, George, but you made sure that no. it took that oh, understand, effort. I supported the family, right? Yeah, yeah. I bought the food, paid, paid the rent, paid the mortgage, paid the everything. But George bought all his own clothes. 
He selected all his own clothes. If he looked good coming out, that was George that did that. <laughs> you gonna take Let me, credit for that, I'll huh? tell you this other little story. When George was a teenager, he was a shoeshine boy. He worked downtown, etc. okay? He wanted nice clothes. George liked nice things. He liked name brand. I mean, this was before people even knew what name brand was, okay? And his daddy wouldn't give him the money to buy clothes. You know, he, he wanted him to just wear, I guess, jeans, t-shirts, you know, that kind of stuff. George said, you don't need to worry about buying my clothes. I'm gonna buy my own clothes. So George used a lot of his shoeshine money to buy nice clothes. George was a clothes horse from the beginning. I mean, George loved Georgines. He loved some Georgines, you tell me? And he looked good, but this is another reason. After he was shot, he told me this one day. He said, Kathy, he said, when people look at me, he said, I want them to say, man, that man looked good. He's so well-dressed, look what he got on. He said, I don't want him. Just, I don't want him to say, look at that poor man in the wheelchair. He didn't want one grain of pity. Never. Oh, no, he didn't like that. Mm -mm. Uh, no. He didn't want nobody to have no sympathy, no pity for nope. him. Nope. Matter of fact, when he... When he used to tell people all the time, I can do more in his wheelchair than you can do walking around. <laughs> matter of fact, <laughs> on his, on his, when he was in the hospital, I was just going to... When he was in the hospital, to the, those last days, uh -huh. when I would come visit, bring some food, you know, you you would always call, and give me a request, what, what he wanted. What he wanted. <laughs> so I would bring some, bring the food, and uh, that didn't give you a little break too. I'll give you a little break. Yeah, you know, that was good. Food. It was hard to keep up with that. Oh, it was hard. It was hard. I knew it was a lot on you. <laughs> so I was sitting there one day, after I brought some food, and uh, and he looked at me. He started. He said, "Well." He said, I've done what I can do, why I, could, why I was able to do it. He said, but you know the strangest thing, he said, I'm in a wheelchair. Tell me how many years they've been in a wheelchair. Yeah. <clears throat> almost 80, well not almost 80 years, but, yeah, 50, over 50 over, years. Almost 50 years. Almost 50 years. It was about 40 years ago. Yeah, time. close to 50. And he told me, he said, I've been in, in a wheelchair all these years. He said, but you, you know, he said, the, the strangest thing, that everybody who came to me for help came to me walking. <laughs> that sounds like it, yeah. He said they could not fight. I'm in a wheelchair. Right, but they could not fight their he battles. He said they couldn't even fight for themselves. They had to come to a man in a wheelchair. He said, now you go figure that. <laughs> but he, he gave me something to think about. Exactly. He said, so don't ever let put yourself in a position where you got to depend on somebody else to fight for you. He said, you got to, he was telling me at the time that you know, I need to learn to fight, I got to make sure I continue to fight for myself. And I just, I never forgot that how, when he said that, that was such a profound statement that everybody, he's in a wheelchair, everybody came to me exactly. for walking. walking, and they couldn't fight for themselves. Yeah. That was powerful. I remember he asked a man one day, you know, talking about that kind of thing. He looked up at the ceiling, it was a light bulb up there, and it, the man he was talking to, he asked, he said, can you reach that light bulb up there? The man said, no. George said, neither can I. <laughs> <laughs> that same kind of thing, you know. Yeah, that's the way he was. Yeah, that's the way he was. But he was a thinker. He truly, truly was a thinker. And he, he, was, he was a friend. He was, 
he always looking for ways to help. And he could read people. Okay, then. He could read people. I mean, I didn't know that's, that's something you tell him. That's me. something very perceptive. He was very perceptive about people. Not that he was perfect. He had many faults. You know, and we had some big arguments. You know, you're not going to go through a decent marriage without having disagreements. And we had some big ones. But, uh, but I loved him, you know, oh, all the way through. I, I know you do. I remember when he, uh, when he came back home from the little stay he had, and y'all was outside in that garden out there. Yeah. And I, that was one of the most powerful experiences I, I ever had being with a couple. Because your husband was gone for a while. He was in prison three and a half years. And you prepared a home for him when he got back. Yeah. I mean, it was such a serene environment that yeah. you created in the front of your house. I created the garden, and I also uh, remodeled the bathroom so that it would be a rolling shower. Because he used to get in and out of, and this just shows you how strong his upper body was. He used to get in and out of one of these big old, tall, old-fashioned clawfoot tubs. On his own. On his own. And I thought about it, I said, you know what? When he comes back, he's getting older. He's not gonna be able to continue to do that. So I've got to fix this shower so that he can get in it. There's no barrier, it's a barrier-free shower. There's no sill or something you have to go, jump over. I bought him a shower wheelchair. I had all that ready when he came I'll back. Tell, I'll tell you, yeah. you, you, I thought ahead, you, you know. You set everything in place, but to come out here that day and to, I had never, you know, like. You'd never seen the garden. I never, I said, I'm sitting, this is, it was, Beautiful. It was just one of them beautiful days where everything was blooming. Yeah. The sun was shining bright. Yeah. And he was just so at peace to be at. George home. loved that garden mm -hmm. because I fi I fixed the front door so that he could roll down into it on his own. On his work. own, and he would roll up to that wrought iron table. He even would drink a pillow with him sometimes, and he he'd take a nap in the garden. He had a television that I covered. We used to cover it with a barbecue pit cover. He had his television out there. He'd bring his newspaper out there. He'd love that garden. Oh, I mean, but you made it such a perfect Oh, yeah, place. yeah. I made it I easy mean, for him. I mean, you really did. I used to go, I used to come sit here. Matter of fact, I got to go find this here. I interviewed George twice out there back then. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that. Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got a couple interviews with him. Yeah. That we were sitting out there talking. I'm talking about 20 years or so ago. Yeah, it's a long time. How, what, what year was that when you put that garden out there? This was in the late 80s. 80s or, or 90s? I think it was, a, you know, you're right, it was the 90s. It was the 90s. the 90s. He got, I'm trying to remember when he got out of prison. I think he was sentenced in 92. It was, a, it was the early 90s. Yeah, it was, it was 92. Because so you know, he was in prison. Jo jo he, he got Delphi. out either yeah. like... 95 or 96, somewhere like that. It had to be around, had to be around the 90s because then I... It was the late, you're right, it was the late 90s. I had a business yeah. behind the mall over there. That's what I was doing while he was in prison. Right. Get, putting everything in Getting that place. garden done, remodeling the bathroom, you know, just all that kind of stuff. And when he got home, he... He, uh, he, he, he was amazed. He, it, he was, was just entranced. A place, a place of refuge, a yeah. place of enjoyment. Because this is what he had to do. This was one of the hardest things he did in his life. Before he went to prison, he had a press conference and he announced that he was resigning as president of the NAACP. And he would no longer take an active role. 
and he who had started the Capital City Baseball Club, he had like 20, 30, 40 ba baseball teams of young boys. He was trying to minister. He thought about all those young boys who grew up without a daddy, and he wanted them to have a mentor. And he, he secured his, bas his, uh, his baseball uh, coaches from the churches, the deacons and the, and the men in the churches. He got everybody involved. He got everybody involved. The school, the school system was involved and they was tutoring for the kids, the ones who were not doing well in school. He had all that going on. And one of the stipulations when he got out of prison, because he had been arrested for molestation of a juvenile, he could not be around children. And that hurt him. Yeah. He tried to get that baseball club started up when he got back from prison, but he just couldn't get the cooperation. He was no longer the president in the NAACP. Understand, George was powerful. Really? When he called you, and he said, you got to sponsor our baseball team. Yeah, he didn't ask you to sponsor. You know, he didn't yeah, ask he, you. He, he didn't said, ask, you got to sponsor. He, he didn't ask what you what you This is sponsor. what you're going to do. He, he okay. Gave, he he told person. you. And he would call black businesses, you know, and he would say, you've got to do this. Because he was concerned about saving our young black men. Look, look the condition we're in in Baton Rouge now. We've lost it. So we got to figure out how to... You need George. another George Eames, but I don't think you're going to get one. <laughs> <laughs> we, got, we, got to do we got a good young man, Eugene Collins, uh, you know, Weather, Eugene Weatherspoon Collins. We're going to have to you, you kind of, you, you know, he came out to uh, school the other day with, uh, with TAS, organization I work with, stand for professionally supporting students. So we got Eugene to come out. He shared a few words with the students about the NAACP. So he's a young man. But we, you know, just, you know, the, the Georgian, the fight, we're going to have to work with him a little bit more. Get him to read George's book, Warrior for Judge, because there's a lot of history in there. That's a good idea. Very good background, because it's, it's all about the, what the NAACP was doing. No, what, what, it was what George was, was doing. doing. But, like I mean, it gives shit. background going all the way back to the 50s. It, Rashid shared stories of what happened with George before he and I ever met. But brother, tell, tell me who brother Rashid is. Rashid Muhammad, Rabi. He's a uh, George's first cousin. He's George, he's a minister. Who's who? He is a minister uh, of uh, uh, of a mosque located right of a mosque located in Baton Rouge. The Black Muslims, mm -hmm. okay. And we've always been very close. Rashid has been like a brother to me too. I haven't heard from him in years, and I think he's suffering with his health. Well, but but I used information he gave me and stories he told me for one of the last chapters in that book. And he shared, he shared a lot of things about what happened with George. Uh, when Stokely Carmichael and Rat Brown and these people from Baton Rouge area were active, etc., how uh, the police responded, and there's some stories in there too. You got to get the book. <laughs> you you, you got to get the book by Kathy Andre Eames, titled A Warrior. For, for justice, justice the George Eames story. What's and it? Eames is spelled E-A-M-E-S. Yeah, and it was being sold here in Baton Rouge bookstores. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the bookstore. Well, they, they but it's available on Amazon. You can get it. Well, we got to get Cleve back on the... On the, on the uh, Cleve is working. <laughs> he's, make, he's living in Miami. <clears throat> he's making contacts. He's trying to get the funding. The screenplay has been written. It's been highly acclaimed by uh, oh, okay. by uh, the people who you know who. So, so you y'all do have a, sc a screenplay? Oh yeah, the screenplay is ready. 
It's, everything's ready. We just need the money. <laughs> well, hopefully we can, through this, through this podcast, we can get generate some interesting excitement back yeah. into the... He's got George some people who are very interested, okay? Now, now back in the days, now, did you, meet, you remember a young lady by the name of uh, Annie Smart? Yeah, I remember Annie Smart. What do you remember about Annie Smart? I, I met her a few times. I saw her a few times. I really didn't understand. She was like a community watchdog. That's best best way to describe Annie. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's really about all I can tell you about okay. her. But she ran against uh, Russell Long for a senator back then. Yeah. So that was a pretty interesting story. I thought you probably knew a little bit more. No, I don't know. I don't know too much about her. Now, George was the historian and. Uh, Sports guy, because George knew everything about George sports. loves sports. I mean, he tell me he's, he's a, he used to watch LSU games from the from the road back in the days. Uh, he said he was sitting on the side. Yeah, he used to sneak into LSU when he was a little boy. Yeah, he told yeah. me stories like. Oh, there was there are stories of his childhood which are precious. I mean, <laughs> you know, I I couldn't put everything in the book. There's just no way. <laughs> no way. There's no way. Now, I have to tell you this. So this is fun. He and he had a friend Huey P. He lived in South Baton Rouge. Huey P. was his friend. Huey P. was his friend. Oh, say the name again. Huey P. Gossaran. All right. Okay. When they were little boys, you know, game day, Saturday, LSU, big, big, okay? These white folks were all coming to LSU. Black folks were not invited in those days, okay? So we talk about them. They would sit up, they would sit up in a tree. <laughs> oh, along uh, Nicholson Highway. And I remember that. And they had their slingshots. And they had uh, china berries. They had a supply of them. <laughs> and then when these white folks would drive by in their convertibles, convertibles. yeah, bang, <laughs> they would get a pop on the back of their head yeah. with the peace, with those pea shooters, yeah. So, so they, they, attacked, they attacked the LSU fans. But George, George also <laughs> told a story where there was time where if LSU would lose, what would happen? You remember that? I don't remember that I story. Said, when LSU would lose, that the the they had to they had to hide themselves. They had, they had to, to be careful because the white people drive down the road and throw eggs <laughs> at the little black kids. That's the children, right? Or yeah. grown people? Or grown people? Or, yeah. Or eggs or tomatoes? Yeah. So he said they had to they had to deal with that. So when LSU no, I understand. Lost. George was born in '33, so this if he was 10 years old which is probably around the right age he would have been doing all this. It would have been 1943. And you know what it was like in 1943? Oh, boy. Oh, they used to call the police cars the roaches. <laughs> the roaches are coming. Because I think they were black in those days. Or black and white. They called them the roaches. But also, George say that, you know, they used to hide from the police, like, under... I can't say they would they would be on side of a, on side of the road, but they go under the house and wait for them because you know they knew yeah the would, they knew the, the route of the police and what they was gonna do, so they would hide right there. And they would come back out soon. The police leave and start shooting their little uh, their little piece shooters over there with slingshots. Yeah. Right so George had George had a lot of great stories. Now let's get back to the Kathy Eve story <laughs> and how you yeah. how the evolution of you. From the laws, from you know, not just going through you, with your own family. I mean, the drama and the pressure of a child that you had to overcome. That you decided to go to Mississippi to get away from that. Yeah, I didn't really go to Mississippi for that. I wanted to be a nun. You really wanted to be a nun? Uh, yeah. 
And I ended the conversation. No. I I didn't even know anything about all this. See, I entered Chattawa in 1960. That's before the 60s activity really, really got heated up. The name of the convent was Chattawa? Well, the name of the school was St. Mary of the Pines. Oh, okay. And it was in a little tiny community called Chattawa. St. Mary of the Pines, that Saint, still, exi- still Saint, exists? It's now the retirement home of the old nuns. Oh, okay. It's no longer a school. So you gonna go there for retirement? No! <laughs> this is my retirement right here. On, on my, on my, in my home. Well, I'm not a nun. I'm not a nun. But, you know, to, to let you know my age, I'm 75. 75 and a beautiful, beautiful and, and, and still going strong. <laughs> because one of the reasons why you eat right. Right. Oh, this is going to be later podcast. We've got to talk. We've got to talk about whole food, plant-based diet. But, but, you st- but you, you've been eating right really before. And garden. I've been gardening. Understand something. That garden started in 1990, what, 92, 93. In the 90s, I have been gardening for about 30 years. And you've been enjoying it. And I have been learning what to do and what not to do. I have failed. I have had so many plants fail, so many procedures fail, and then I've learned what works. Uh, this has just crossed my mind when I think about George, right? Uh-huh. And we know George was, a, was vain. Yeah, he loved vain. George. He okay. loved George a He loved George. Matter of fact, that George, he's a bad boy. I got to give him credit that George planned his own funeral. Yes, he did. You know, he, he, yeah. called, he called me to come take notes. <laughs> <laughs> what things that he wanted okay. done at his funeral. Yeah. Well, what happened is that the last three years of George's life were really difficult. And not the hospital. The year before, the year before he died, this was in 2011, he was in the hospital a hundred, over 190 days, not all at one time. Sometimes he'd be there for two or three days. Sometimes he'd be there for a week, two weeks, a month, etc. He had uh, uh, he had serious wounds. Yeah, little more wounds. Yeah, wound yeah, care. he had wound wound care. We we were dealing with that all the time. He was on IVs. And the, the doctors and the nurses used to call me Dr. Andre because they taught me how to take care of him. I administered his IVs. I had a, we had a wound vac machine on him and I did all the changing of all the, the bandages and everything. Okay. So this was a very difficult year. So in 2012, I remember the Christmas of 2011. George insisted he was coming home for Christmas. You know how stubborn he could be. No, not George. He insisted he was coming home for Christmas. In 2011, he's in the hospital. 2011, he's in the hospital. He's been in there a month. He's going to tell you. But he's telling me he's coming home for Christmas. And I had the doctors come in and talk to him, and they said, George, if you leave against our instructions, which we don't advise you to leave, your insurance may not cover, you know, may not cover you because you're doing this against doctor's orders. And what I told him, I said, George, I said, if you leave, insurance doesn't cover you, I'm done. I said, I'm not gonna take care of you anymore. 
a minute because I need help. I can't do this by myself. Did you mean so that? So, I'm, well, I meant it. I okay? didn't know what I was going to do if he left. Okay. Okay, so he had to think about that. <laughs> he said, well, I guess I'm going to have to stay. And Herman Brister, Jr., his friend, his friend who... Uh, no, Herman Brister, Sr., yeah, it was Herman Brister Sr. Right, you're right, you're right, right. He said, George, because I, I called Herman. I called several people to talk to him because he was being so stubborn about this. Herman said, this is what I'm going to do, George. He said, on Christmas, Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, he said, before I even eat my own Christmas dinner, he said, I'm going to bring you Christmas with all the trimmings. And he did. I had gotten uh, the hospital staff to let me keep a small refrigerator in the room. And so I had, I had that thing filled up and we ate on it. We had a microwave that we could use. And so that's how we did it. But that's the only way we got George to stay. Number one, I told him I wasn't going to take care of him. I was going to turn him loose. He's on his own if he leaves the hospital. And then Herman says, George, he says, I'm going to bring you Christmas. You don't need to go home. You need to stay where they can take care of you. So that's what happened that's that last Christmas. Now that following, that year, the new year, which is 2012, he, he was home. He was sent permanently home. And uh, we didn't leave unless we had like a doctor's appointment or something like that. It was a very difficult year. But he was suffering a great deal. He, was, he had weakness and pain. And of course, he had the wound back. We were doing the IV treatments and all this kind of stuff. And he had a doctor's appointment or the doctors came to him. He wasn't back in the hospital that, I think it was about September. And they had taken some x-rays and they found cancer in his lungs. Mm. And it metastasized to some of the bone. I and it was in his, I think in his kidney, one of his, his kidneys. And they said, uh, there's no treatment. He says, this is inoperable. They said, this is terminal. So you need to make you, you know, set your affairs in order. So we started doing that. They sent him home with an oxygen machine and all of that. This was like at the end of September, October. So I started thinking about this. I said, you know what? I said, I need George to help me plan his funeral. <laughs> I want to find out what he wants, you know? So we did that. Oh, so you had something to do with that? Then. I had something to do with that, and I had my computer, and I, would, I was just typing, you know? So I said, well, we need to write your biography. This is what's going to be published in the paper. Jimmy Inkster paid for that, by the way. Jim took care of it. Jim took care of that. He paid for it, because it, George had a long one, and it was like two or $300, okay? So Jim said, Kathy, he says, I want to do this for George. So he paid for it. And he also spoke at the funeral. Right. And you spoke at the funeral. Dale Brown. And Dale Brown spoke at the funeral. All of these people. Joe uh, Delvin. Herman, let's see, Tracy Porter. Porter would have spoken at the funeral, yeah, but, he kissed, but he had some kind of uh, work he had some kind of no. He had some kind of work engagement. And he lived in California. He was living in California, so his mother. His mother. He wrote. Mother. He wrote what he wanted to say about George, and his mother delivered it. All that's in the book. 
<laughs> All these things are in the book. But anyway, George and I began planning. So we started, first of all, talking about, well, what songs do you want? Okay, so Jesus, I mean, uh, George, you know, explained, you know. This is another thing that I was doing to him in those last couple of months. I had a little laptop, and I found all of his favorite hymns online, and I would place the laptop on his chest and put the earphones in his ears, and he, would, he could barely talk at that time, and he would say, music. And then I knew what he wanted. It just would be like late at night and he would be listening to the Lord is my light and my salvation. Jesus is the center of my joy. And then there was another one. I can't think of it right now. But anyway, that's that's one of the things I did. I prayed with him every day, read scripture to him. And he couldn't hold his Bible. It was too heavy, etc. But anyway, we planned his funeral. We did that. He decided who all his pallbearers were going to be. He wanted, he knew who he wanted to speak at his funeral, etc. And then when we started talking about the music, he said, I'm trying to think of who is this young man at uh, Mount Zion who does the music? Uh, yeah, I don't know. You can't think heritage. He leads heritage. Anyway, this is one of his favorite. And this is Mount Zion where he went to church for many years. In the end, in the last few years, he had gone to St. Paul with me. But anyway, he said, you got to call him and tell him I want him to do my music. So he said, get him on the phone. <laughs> Let me tell him. Though. He's not going to ask him. He's going to say, man, you, you got to do the music for my funeral. And he said, George, I would be proud. I can't think of his name. I wish I could. But anyway, I'll think of it later. It's, it's in the book. Anyway, so that's how we, we planted George. George helped me write his biography because I, I thought, you know, I'm not going to remember the years. I don't know what he really wants to say, what he wants to express. So I thought, that, I thought it was all George doing because he had me show up. And I took no, some notes one day. we did. We, okay. we planned the whole thing. I mean, he had his, he had his music, music picked out. He knew, I th he said, oh, I said, now where are we going to have this thing? Where are we going to have the funeral? He said, well, he said, I can't have it at St. Paul's because the, the priest had left. He had been transferred. He said, and I don't know the priest there. He said, can't do that. Don't want to have it in Mount Zion. He said, I'm going to call, um, uh, what's his, what was his neighbor's name? Uh, Reggie. Got to call Reggie. The young man Reggie, Reggie Bear. Okay. Okay. He's a minister. He has, I'm trying to think of the name of his church. Is it True Light? It's True Light. Off True. Of, off of North That's it. Yeah, True, True Light. Light. That's where the funeral he, is. He called him. <laughs> he said, man, he said, I want you to preach my funeral. I want you to do it. He said, I'd be happy to. So we had that lined up. That's where we were going to have it. And then, uh, Joe Delpit called me, I mean, I, or I called Joe Delpit. Actually, I think after George out, he called, he said, Kathy, don't worry about the food. Yeah, we, he said, we I, will, I will supply, I will supply everything. Yeah, what, what do you want on the menu? Okay. You know, so he provided everything. Joe Delpit. So many people helped. Yeah. All these people, I mean, George, 
orchestrated his own funeral. He really did. Well, I know he did. And he loved it. And I said, George, you know what we're going to call this? We're going to call this your celebration of life. Because that's what they call him now. So he loved it. He was thrilled about his celebration of life. He, could, he said, man, I wish I could be there. <laughs> <laughs> you will be there. He would have loved, you know, to hear what they were going to say about him, you know, oh, just he, all of this. Oh, he just talked about it, but I just he remember was, the last days, too, when, when y'all had him in that, uh, in that bed that shook a lot, you know, that bed that vibrated. Yeah. Like, that's, now that, that was the toughest thing to watch that, you know, watch him in that, laying in that bed every day, that just... It vibrated nonstop, but I had to because of his wound care. Right? Well, the thing is, I had a machine that is supposed to really help your circulation. And what it does, there's a place for your ankles to rest. And I would put padding under there, you know, more. And what it did, it went from side to side. So it stimulated circulation, right. especially in the lower extremities. And I thought... We thought that it was helping his wounds to heal a little bit. Now we realized after we found out he had cancer, there was a reason the, the wounds were not healing. He had cancer. Mm -hmm. And it had been advancing all this time. But you see, George was paralyzed from the bullet wound years ago, from the mid chest down. And this was a blessing because he didn't feel pain the way you or I would have felt it. So he only had sensation like from the middle of the chest up. Blessing that he had his strong arms. Strong arms in a beautiful space, like he said. He, he was, yeah. He was working out One of the things he did, this was about maybe two weeks before he died. We went, went to his final coma. He didn't last long after that. He said, Kathy, bring me a mirror. <laughs> he said, I want to see what I'm going to look like in my coffin. <laughs> But he had a great sense of humor. He was thin. He was thin. And he looked at himself and he examined himself. He said, I don't look too bad. <laughs> not for old man. I look, all, I look all right. Yeah. So he was in his about 78? George died just short of his 80th 80 birthday. birthday. Oh, okay. When, when, when is his birthday? Um, March. As a matter of fact, it was just a couple of days ago, March 13, oh, okay. 1933. The year of the de Depression. Yeah. 1933. He lived through all of that. <clears throat> yeah, but I just remember that time when uh, I, I thought, so, I, I, so you, you was really the, uh, uh, I, I, the one behind pushing this. Yeah, because I, I, I had to ask him questions. He didn't know what to, you know. I said, okay, what about the music? Let's do the music. Which, and I would take notes and I would write everything down. Because he would call me, you know, what you, you know, come over here, I want to talk to you right quick. So I had to <laughs> come over and listen to what he had to say. Yeah, you know, but it was right. Really, it was, I enjoyed being this person. Yeah, yeah, he, he was, was amazing. He was, he was amazing. Friend, but he had so much, he had a wealth of knowledge about the yeah. community. About the he lived, I think, and many people have told me this, Kathy, if you had not been in his life, he would never have lived as long. He wouldn't. I don't think so. You took excellent care. I took great care of him. As I said, they called me Dr. Andre. You really did. I mean, just to see when you, <laughs> different places. Do you remember that pool table? Right. That was in that family room. It was loaded down with all kinds of bandages and ivy stuff. I mean, it was covered with medical supplies. Your your job was nonstop. Was nonstop. And, and sometimes I came and you didn't want to you didn't want to talk to me no George. I uh, <laughs> you talk, 
I, it took me months to recover after his death because oh, I was so worn out. You I was worn out. I was thin. I was very small. I wore a size six. I was tiny. I had lost a lot of weight because I, I ran non nonstop, nonstop. And the only way I was even able to go to church on Sunday, Gloria High Stewart, good friend of ours, she was his friend. She would come on Sunday mornings and sit with him so I could go to church. That's how I was able to go to church. But he didn't want you out of his sight anyway. He didn't want me out of his he sight. Really did not. He didn't want anybody to bathe him, even when he was in a hospital. Now, what, what, what he wouldn't let a nurse touch him. He wouldn't let a nurse now, bathe him. Now, what, I had to bathe him. What was your nickname? Dr. Andre. No, no. What did he call you? What did effect in, 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 they were in This was another. He called you. I don't know what you're getting at. I don't know. When, when, I, when he and I be in the this room. This is a story. When he and I be I'm going to tell, tell you this. This is another story George told. He said, you know, he said, after the Civil War, they promised to give every freed black 40 acres and a mule. He said, I got my mule, <laughs> but I'm still waiting on the 40 acres. <laughs> And of course, I was his mule. <laughs> but he also, we'd be in another room and he hollered, sweet! <laughs> what do you call you? What do you call uh, Boo boo. Boo boo, you call him. Boo boo! Yeah, right. And this happened at the end. You know, he had lung cancer, okay? So he could barely talk. He, was, he had oxygen, etc. And he got Dale Brown on the phone one day. He and Dale were talking. And he said, Dale, he said, Kathy just don't come anymore when I call her. <laughs> I couldn't hear him. He couldn't talk loud. He would say, Kathy. Oh, he thought you were. Kathy. And if I was on this side of the house, I couldn't hear him. I might have been in the kitchen cooking, washing dishes, whatever. So I said, okay, I'm going to fix that. So I went out and I found a bell. Okay. A bell. And he could take that bell. And he had enough strength he could shake it, and that's the only way I could hear him when he was calling. So I you, still have that bell. When I, come I kept you, it. You'd be cooking or whatever. Oh yeah, well I was. I never stopped. Never. Never. And then I had laundry. I had all the you know the sick room stuff that I had to do. And then many people came. Many people came to visit. Uh, three NAACP presidents presidents came couple weeks before he died. Um, I'm trying to think of who, who all they were. Um, it had to be Alvin Washington who was the president. Alvin Washington, the state president then. Ernest I, Johnson. Ernest Johnson, and there was another one. Anyway, they came to show appreciation. They say, George, we had to come to tell you that we appreciate all that you did all the sacrifices you made for the NAACP through all these years. We don't think we even, even appreciated you enough, you know. And I really appreciated them. Now they took pictures. I took pictures with them uh, and so forth. And I asked, I said, please let me have some copies of those pictures, you know. I never got them, so, you know, I regret that because I would have liked to have a copy of one of those. but. Uh, yeah, people, many, many people came. Of course, Dale came several times. Herman Brister came. People came bringing food. Oh, yeah. Joe you know, Delpit, so many people. Joe, Joe Delpit came. Was Joe, so, yeah, yeah. So many people came up in honor, to honor him before he 
before he passed. Yeah, they wanted to show appreciation before he actually died. Well, he done more for this community. He did so much. Young Herman Brister Jr. was in his baseball program. Today he is a principal. His wife is a principal. You know. So George did much. He did much for sports. But he had that little white woman right next to his side. Yeah, his mule. <laughs> Pushing the wheelchair. Yeah, yeah. The way and understand something. George deeply appreciated me. Oh, he, did. he did. He did. And he, and he, he would tell again. anybody. He would tell anybody. So, you know, it was reciprocal. It really was. It was amazing. So you As I said, I fell in love with the man. The man named? George Eames. George? G. Washington Eames. All right, then. Who? And we got Kathy. Andre. Andre Eames. Eames here. And we'd like to thank you for being here today, for sharing your heart, your story, and the wonderful book that she wrote in 30 days, people. <laughs> But we want to thank you for being here. But we're going to be doing a follow-up because Miss, she told you she's a gardener. And we need to start doing what we call emergency preparedness. Because in, as we see now in this country, we don't know where things are going. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen to the food supply, transportation. We don't know what's going to happen to just the things we need to survive on a daily basis. We'll, are we still going to have access to everything? So Ms. Kathy uh, have decided, she's been working on this for over 30 years. She's growing her own garden. She wants to encourage and train and teach others how to do gardening and prepare for the, any type of emergency. We know what's going on in, although it's way in Ukraine and with Russia going on, but we don't know where it's gonna go from here. We're already experiencing effects here. High gas prices. It's gonna go much. It's gonna go much further than that. The supply and supply. What's called supply chain have been broken. Yeah, supply chains, etc. So right. we want to have a discussion where we're gonna talk about what you want to talk about next time. Well, I think that we need to talk about emergency preparedness in general, like money. What's gonna happen with the money? Water. How can you store enough water? Food. So I want to go into just the general areas of preparedness. What happens if the grid goes down? What you mean, what grid? The electric grid. All right, do you realize? And they're talking about this. We're talking about cyber attacks. What happens if they knock the grid down? What happens if we can't put it back up for several months? What are you going to do? What do you lose if you lose electricity? You're going to lose your water. You're going to lose sewer service. You won't be able to access your computer, the internet, banking, credit cards, medical services, gas, grocery stores, drug stores, other business, cell phones. So we're going to be back. We're going to be talking about we're this. We're going to be back in the, from back to 200 years ago. We got to live. We're going to be living the, like we were living in the Middle Ages. Or the 1800s. So we're going to be living on the, on, the, on the fruits of the land. I have been studying this for several years. And I have put together a list and details about how to be prepared for any of these eventualities. This is where we're going next. That's where we're going next. Then you'll understand why you need to garden. And the importance of 
start thinking about this now. Start thinking so about it. We're we, we going to hope we're doing this soon uh, because this is a passion of hers. She already took me through the, <laughs> through the gardening, and I, I really wish I'd have been videoing where y'all can at least see a piece, some pieces of it. And things are starting to bloom now. It's, it's not spring haven't hit, but it's, it's early. Spring about to come into and, and come in. Spring is on the way, uh, so things are about to start blooming. So now it's time to start getting your garden ready. Right. So we thank you, Miss uh, Kathy Andre Eames, for being here on Countdown. And don't forget the book, Warrior for Justice, The George Eames Story by Kathy Andre Eames. And it's a wonderful book. You need just to read it just to see what I say. <laughs> Just read my little piece. I wrote. I wrote the book. What, what year did you write that book? Oh, it was two thousand. It went to the publisher in two thousand. Two thousand thirteen. But you wrote it in two thousand. It was published in two thousand fifteen. Okay. Yeah, I wrote it the year. It wasn't a complete year that Georgia died. He died December eight, two thousand twelve, and the book went to the publisher in December, two thousand thirteen. But it was, it was written in 30 days. I want you to understand, written in 30 days. <laughs> she went back and revised the book for publishing because you weren't thinking about right. publishing. You were just doing yeah. something for Cleve. I might want to add this one thing. Cleve called me, Cleve Bailey, George's great nephew, called me and he said, hey, Kathy, he said, I need to talk to you. I said, fine. I said, come over anytime. So he came over. I said, what's on your mind? He said, hey, Kathy. He said, I want to make a movie about you and Uncle George. I said, you want to do what? <laughs> I said, how you going to do that? He's dead. <laughs> how you going to make? He said, no. He said, we'll do it with actors and actresses. Okay. I said, okay. He said, but this is what I need to know. What? He said, I need to know more about you as a little girl. Your background. How did you become to be who you are? How did this little white girl from across the river, from the west side, born into a racist family, parish, state, become who you are, because you don't have a trace of racism in your body. I said, Cleve, I said, let me, let me think about it. <laughs> I'll see if I can make a few notes. Okay, that was in August. Oh, you remember that? I started I, I think it was like the month of September that I wrote the book. I started writing and it just poured out of me. I had to leave my computer on. I would get into bed at two o'clock in the morning and then I would think of something I had to say. So what I would do is that I would get up and go write and type some more. So this was like nonstop 30 days. I took time to eat and that's not much else. <laughs> you, you, you just dedicate all of your time to writing. I had to. Only because of one thing Cleve I would send, right, Cleve, I need to mo know more, okay. So what I did is that as I would finish like 20 pages, 50 pages, I would email them to Cleve and he would say, keep it coming, keep it coming. <laughs> so that's how it came about. No, no thought on writing a book at the time? No, but I had all of George's files. I'd been keeping files for him keeping documents, keeping letters, keeping uh, news articles, etc. 
And I went through and I completely, uh, you know. Just think if, if they wouldn't have burned all the other articles up. Well, I know I would have had so much more material to go through, but I had enough. Yeah, more than enough. I had enough. Yeah. yeah, it's an amazing book and there's a lot of color pictures in it. Some black and white pictures. Yeah, from the very beginning, like there's a picture of the first like the first real date that George and I had, we went to a. Oh, I saw that picture. You, you saw on that top, picture. You sitting on the car? No, 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 that was another one. You sitting on the car? Yeah, you, you saw that one. Sexy. That's a very sexy picture. <laughs> I was really good looking when I was young. What you mean, was? Uh, yeah, on. well, I mean, not like when I was young. Oh, well, none of I had very me. long black hair. You know, George used to call me his Cleopatra. Ooh, yeah. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Like that. Huh? Or just like yeah. John had that yeah. silver tongue, like they say. You know, yeah, right. Yeah, he, he was but a charm. No, you were, you were, you were. When I first met you, like, oh, that's a good looking lady. I mean, you yeah. still are. You take great care of yourself. Well, you know what? You'll soon know why I look good. Because you're going to learn about my diet, which is mm -hmm. no, no meat, no seafood, no animal fat, uh, no eggs, no milk, oh, hold, hold on, no you, dairy. We don't, we don't, that's we, another podcast. But we, don't, we don't want people to say, well, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> no, that's my diet. But we won't let people know I'm not that. saying you have to eat that we way. We won't let people know that you can live a very prosperous and rewarding life eating from the fruits of the land. It, I mean, yeah, that's it. Yeah, and that, that's the most important. You can eat meat if you choose to. I just choose not to. And how long will you stop eating meat? It's been five years. I just had blood work. My blood is fine. My iron levels, I'm not anemic. Everything's good. And you still get jumping up like a little teenager? Well, you Where know you what? I have, I have some health issues that were caused from years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not quite like that. I'm kind of slow walking, etc. But I am 75. Some of it's, you know, it's from that, I guess. Um, but I have energy. I have my mind. I'm sharp. Oh, you yes, know. it is. <laughs> That's most important. That's why we can have this wonderful podcast and your great story that you told today. Yeah. That you shared with everybody today. So we'd like to thank you once again for being part of Count Time. And it's been a joyous and a wonderful time sharing with you and, you know, being able to go back and hear these stories that we had not talked about. Right. Some of them you time. didn't hear. No, look, Some of them you hadn't heard. I'd like to thank you for being my first European female. <laughs> I don't want to just say a white woman, but my first European female. Cajun. To be, to you can a, say a Cajun. A, a Cajun? Yeah, I'm a Cajun. Okay, but you, you're not a poor Cajun, huh? You're not capable of the Yeah, I'm fairly poor, poor, but anyway, <laughs> I'll do fine. I'd like to thank you for being part of Count Time. It, it really was a joyful time, and thank you for being here today. You're welcome. Man can shackle the hand. Man can shackle the feet. But only you can shackle the mind. The mind is always free to travel wherever you dare to take it. Welcome to Count Time.